so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Since Roe v. Wade was written into law in 1973, millions of babies have been aborted. But in the midst of such tragedy, the pro-life movement has been growing. With the 50th anniversary of Roe looming, what does the future of the legislation look like? At Evangelicals for Life, Travis Wousseau and Kristen Wagner discuss this and the future of pro-life policy. We hope you find this discussion helpful. My name is Travis Wusso, and I serve as the Vice President of Public Policy and General Counsel for the ERLC. I lead our team here in Washington, uh, and I'm joined with uh, Kristen Wagner, who serves as a Senior Vice President of the U.S. Legal Division and Communications with the Alliance Defending Freedom, one of our our close partners and allies uh, in this work. And in in this role, Kristen oversees uh, the U.S. Legal Division, which is a team of about 100 lawyers and staff uh, who engage in litigation, public, uh, public advocacy, and uh, litigation support. So this morning, what we're, I mean, ADF does a lot of things. What we're gonna talk about this morning uh, is, uh, is the future of pro-life policy and, and Kristen's work uh, with this. So to begin, I wanna talk a little, bit about the, uh, a little bit about the judiciary. So, you know, we've seen over the last two years a pretty dramatic uh, change to the judiciary. We're gonna talk about uh, some of the circuit court and lower court judges in a minute, but, but I wanna start off by asking, you know, how is ADF thinking about the new Roberts Court with newly appointed and confirmed Justice Gorsuch and, and Justice Kavanaugh? Well, we're encouraged and we're optimistic, um, especially in light of how we were feeling a few years ago, um, looking at maybe a different scenario on the court. I think it's impossible to read the tea leaves about how a judge is going to respond to any particular case. But what we know is we need originalists on the court. And when I say originalist, what I'm talking about is someone that reads the Constitution as it is written and tries to apply it as the founders intended when they wrote it. Um, They don't try to create new rights, um, but simply want to be faithful to the text of the Constitution. And from what we have seen in the jurisprudence of Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh, um, they follow that mold of an originalist jurist. Over the last couple of years, Senate Majority Leader has presi- uh, Mitch McConnell has presided over the appointment of 30 circuit court judges, 53 district court judges. That's a record. Uh, for, <laughs> um, help us, you know. So we, you know, there's so much attention on the Supreme Court and and its impact. But help us understand what do, what do these 30 and 53 new men and women? What do they mean for our country and for this issue? Well, I think we have to go back again to the importance of originalists on the court. And it doesn't matter whether that's the Supreme Court or the lower courts. Um, The way that our system works is that the Supreme Court doesn't hear every case that's appealed to it. In fact, it only takes about 80 cases every year. 
And that's out of about 8,000 that are sent up to the court. So about 1% of all cases, the Supreme Court actually decides. Um, and so that means those lower court judges are making final rulings in those cases. And um, that's why it's important that we have good originalists on the court at the lower court levels as well. And then when those cases are taken by the Supreme Court, they rely on the lower court's decisions, their rationale, their findings of fact. Um, and so you want to have judges that are authoring, speaking truth, and really writing persuasive decisions. Right. So I want to shift gears in a minute and talk about strategy. Uh, but before we get there, you know, the 2018 midterms, you know, obviously it, it, it's resulted now in divided Congress between the House and the Senate, but it also had a big impact on the state legislatures as well. Help us understand what happened in 2018 and, and how does that impact uh, the, just sort of the atmosphere, what you're looking at in terms of what's coming up from the states? Well, I think 2018 is mixed results. Um, you know, those who would advocate for abortion um, definitely made some significant inroads in this last election. But I think we do want to remember that pro-life lawmakers still hold the majority of the states. And so it still is possible, particularly at the state level, to pass meaningful legislation that protects women and children. Um, and, and that's encouraging to see. Yeah. So as we're, as we're talking about um, ADF strategy and sort of the long-term strategy of the pro-life movement as, when it comes to Roe v. Wade, set, set the stage for us. What are, you know, as you, if, I mean, as ADF has its sights uh, set on that particular precedent, what's, what are the steps that we need to, we need, we need to take to, to get there? Well, first of all, I would say um, ADF works in three areas. Uh, we exist to protect the sanctity of life, religious freedom, and marriage and family. We do that in the courtroom, also by assisting with legislation and in public advocacy. And I do want to talk for a minute about Roe and what the strategy is there, but I also think it's really important for us to understand as a pro-life community that we don't just need to overturn Roe. We also, at the same time, need to be protecting religious freedom as we move up and protecting free speech. And the way the court system works is that if you protect it in other cases, maybe that aren't directly connected to life, it will protect it in the life cases as well. Because we're going to be, it's going to be hard to continue to advocate and not only win over in, in the court system, but in the culture, a pro-life view that values every human being mm -hmm. if we can't speak about it and we don't have robust free speech. So that's one thing I, I would... I would say, in terms of the strategy, you know, we hear a lot about Roe. We need to have Roe overturned. Roe constitutionalized the right to abortion. That's the significance of that decision. Casey, uh, another court decision, we had hoped would overturn Roe. But what it did say in Casey is that the state has a legitimate interest in protecting women and their unborn children. And so, when you get to the state level, the limitations that we talked about, the statutes that are being passed at the state level, those are helpful and play into protecting women and children and ultimately will lead to overturning Roe. Well, let's, let's talk about a couple of those, you know, those, this, the, the bills that have been passed or examples of the types of bills that might be passed to the state legislature. What are, what are some of the things that, that you're watching that you're hoping to see over the, over the next few years? Well, it's pretty early in terms of what's happening in the state legislatures to know exactly what will be introduced. We do know Nebraska's introduced a bill um, that is essentially requiring providers to notify women about the abortion reversal pill. And we're seeing more and more uh, pro-life pregnancy centers that are offering that where doctors can, and they do get calls, you know, of women who have taken Plan B, 
things like that, saying, I'm regretting this, what can I do? And they see lives saved through that. Wow. Um, examples of other bills that we've seen, um, we're going to see, I think, a hard press to expand or affirm the right of healthcare providers to not be forced to do things that are harmful to people. So yes, it includes not participating in abortion, but also have to engage in other procedures that they believe are unethical and violate their convictions. We'll, we'll see that as well. And then a lot of informed consent laws. One of the cases that we're looking at right now that's going to be up before the Supreme Court to consider taking has to do with requiring, it's from Indiana, um, requiring a provider to give a woman the opportunity to have an ultrasound and to talk about the results of that ultrasound 18 hours before they have an abortion. So those are some common um, statutes that have been passed and that we expect to continue in other states. Okay. So I mentioned before, 2018 has now resulted in a, in a divided Congress between the House and the Senate. Um, what, what is the impact of that in terms of the opportunities at the federal level for legislation and sort of the threats to the, uh, to the pro-life movement? Well, it is disheartening. Um, we had an opportunity that I think in some ways passed. But what we also know is we don't know around the corner what God will provide. Um, but we do know it will be difficult for pro-life legislation to get through the Congress uh, this year. And I think we got closer to defunding Planned Parenthood than any other year a couple years ago. And, and we need to keep up that effort because it's, it's year after year after year of pushing that eventually you tip it over and you get it, get it done. So we will see bills um, introduced this year, I'm sure, on defunding Planned Parenthood, on ensuring that there's no uh, taxpayer funding of abortion, healthcare provider rights of, of conscience and things. And, and I do want to encourage, I, I don't think I said this in, in, in reference to the state question, but we also saw um, a couple of states pass constitutional amendments this year that, right. that said there's no state constitutional right to abortion. That was uh, West Virginia and Alabama. So um, I think we'll see more of those efforts too. There's yeah. a lot to be hopeful about. Yeah, no doubt. So I want to shift gears and, and talk a little bit about the Supreme Court. Um, and maybe to set the stage, uh, last term, ADF had a huge victory uh, at the Supreme Court, the NIFLA decision. Uh, so I'm wondering if you, you know, you, you talked about pro-life pregnancy centers just a moment ago. If you could talk a little bit about that case, what it means. Uh, and then I have a couple of other questions for you about cases that are currently pending before the court. Sure. Well, uh, we actually, there were three significant victories in the Supreme Court term last term, and I think they all build on each other in terms of what we're talking about with protecting the rights of healthcare providers, protecting the rights of sidewalk counselors, and those of us who want to speak about life. And, and NIFLA was kind of the, the ultimate victory that we had of those three. It involved whether religious pro-life centers could be forced to post signs that would refer women to get free or low-cost government-funded abortions. And they were being required to post these signs in their waiting rooms and give them to women. Um, there were other provisions that were actually requiring some centers that they couldn't even really advertise because of all the disclaimers that the state of California was trying to get them to put in their advertising, which drowned out their message. So what was really at issue was this idea of compelled speech. Can the state make us say something that violates our convictions? And the court, in a five to four decision, said absolutely not. The government cannot force pro-life speakers to have to speak a message that violates their convictions. And it's a fantastic decision. I'd encourage you to read it, um, including Justice Kennedy's concurrence. 
um, which he basically chastises the state of California and said, if you think you're going to get people to think your way on this by forcing them to do that, you're sadly mistaken. So one of the cases that we were hoping the court might take up uh, this year was a challenge uh, brought by an appeal from several conservative states that sought to deny Medicaid funds uh, to Planned Parenthood. Um, talk to us a little bit about that, about that case and what are you kind of reading between the tea leaves on why the Supreme Court decided not to bring this case up this term? Well, we try not to read between the tea leaves too much in part because we are at the Supreme Court on a regular enough basis, you, you don't ever want to presume to know what those backroom discussions are. Um, so I don't know. I don't know why they did what they did. I will tell you, we were disappointed. Mm. But at the same time, it's not a precedent that was set by that. And really, if we look at what the interest was, it was Planned Parenthood saying, we think we have a right to sue the state if the state decides to not let us participate in Medicaid funding at the state level. So it was really a procedural matter in terms of whether Planned Parenthood could even file the lawsuit. Mm. But the denial of the court to not hear the case didn't go to the merits of whether states can decide not to fund Planned Parenthood. So that's an important thing to remember. And I think we also have to remember the timing of that. Um, As you know, um, I know you paid close attention to that. There was a three-judge dissent And that dissent took the court to task saying, the only reason you're not taking this is because it has to do with abortion and Planned Parenthood. But this is one of Justice Kavanaugh's very first cases that came before him. And the court works in gradual increments. So we don't know. We're not reading anything into it, positive or negative. But we will keep on fighting for the next day. Well, there's another case that is still pending. The the court has considered it a couple of times and relisted it, the Box B Planned Parenthood case. This is the Indiana case that you just mentioned a moment ago. Talk to us about that case, and and, I mean, I I think we're all hoping that the court will take it up, but but what, what can we expect from that, or what are you thinking about that in light of the case we just talked about? Well, I think there's actually three cases that we really are are having our eye on, um, and two come out of Indiana. So Box is a case that comes out of Indiana, too. And um, Indiana, they're they're being assertive, and rightly so, to protect uh, women and children there. There are two laws in Indiana that have been passed that are going up to the court, and the court's deciding whether to take. The first one has to do with sex selection abortions and disability discrimination abortions. So they're basically a ban that says if a woman um, is, is pregnant and going to abort because she found out it was a boy instead of a girl, that that would not be appropriate. It would violate the law. Um, and so that's an important case. And then the other one is a dismemberment ban, which has to do with can uh, a state pass a law that says it is wrong for a provider to dismember a living child in the womb as the form of abortion. Um, And both of those cases will go up, along with the case I I mentioned earlier. That was Alabama, the dismemberment ban, along with the ultrasound 18-hour requirement we talked about earlier. Okay. You know, as we are kind of looking at what's coming at us down the, and and what opportunities there are, how... You know, how are you feeling, and, and what, what cause for hope do we have you know, for what's coming in the next couple of years? Well, I don't know how you couldn't be optimistic. I mean, you know, first of all, we serve a God that knows the end from the beginning, and it's his desire to protect people, and, to, and, and we're his hands and feet here. So we're, we're filled with resilience, we're filled with joy, and I keep thinking about, you know, in, 
in the times in the Old Testament, as Pharaoh is killing those, un, those babies, Moses is growing up in his home. So no matter what the circumstances look like, we're people of hope. But I think in terms of what we're actually seeing, we're hopeful as well. We, the polls are telling us that millennials are more pro-life than their parents were. That trend's going to continue as technology advances with 4D ultrasounds, which I know you guys have helped with at ERLC, as well as with surgeries that correct spina bifida. All of those cultural things are going our way, and so is the law, because we're seeing more and more states realize the harm that abortion causes and wanting to protect the, those harms through parental involvement laws, informed consent laws, and then also through protecting speech, whether that be making sure students can speak freely on their public campuses about life, uh, healthcare providers can talk to their patients without being forced to refer them for harmful services, whether that be assisted suicide or abortion. Um, there's just a whole lot of reason to be optimistic about where the movement is going um, and that hopefully we will not just get to a place where the law says abortion is wrong, but where we have a pro-life culture, where it's unthinkable because right. we have so much support going into, the, into families and communities. Right, so, so building off this hope as we're leaving here today, what's one thing or what's a, what's a couple of things that, that we can do in our lives to, to continue to advocate for and, and, and promote this kind of future that you just mm -hmm. painted a beautiful picture of? Raise strong families. Um, I mean, that's the first thing that comes to mind uh, with our kids, talking to our kids in our own homes. And sometimes that's the most difficult conversation to have is the one with your teenage daughter who uh, is emotional, who is hearing things at school that are not the truth, and getting ourselves educated to be able to deal with those issues. Uh, we have resources at a table outside that deals with how to do sidewalk counseling and what your rights are, um, how you can speak on public campuses about pro-life issues, as a healthcare provider, what your rights are, as a ministry, what your rights are to ensure that you're able to speak the truth and to provide the support. I mean, there are over 2,000 pro-life pregnancy centers in the nation, more than abortion clinics, to help with those, to provide practical resources to women that really aren't a matter of what choice they make, but still stand with them even if they make the wrong choice and they're still seeking help. Right. So those conversations and those events, they happen in the legislature, in the hallways, in testimony, in letters to the editor, at the water cooler, in the warehouse, in your boardrooms, speaking the truth and living consistent with it. Wow, that's great. Please join me in thanking uh, Kristen for her time and for sharing with us today. Thanks for tuning in to the ERLC podcast. For more information on this topic and other free resources, visit ERLC.com and join us next week as we listen to a talk about navigating the world of relationships and dating.